0: Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Uh, wanted to uh, pick up where we left off like one preacher said years ago. this uh, good sermon's kind of like a baloney, right? You should be able to cut that thing anywhere and it still tastes just as good. so we'll pick it up where we left off. And so uh, I'm going to read the whole parable here again. I'm going to give you some quick refreshers on where we were and then we'll see if we can't get this thing finished today. I have full confidence that we will. Uh, This is the Word of God, church. Hear it this morning. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to the angel's But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said uh, but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent he said to them if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. May God have blessed you in the reading of his holy inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts this morning. We are all beggars. That was the last words that the reformer Martin Luther spoke before he slipped into eternity. The man who wrote the 95 Thesis and them on the front of the church in Wittenberg. The last thing he said before he died was, "We are all beggars." And in the passage today, don't we have two beggars? We not have a poor man in this life who stood and begged at the gates of the rich man and then in eternity, their flight, their plight was switched to where the one who was once the beggar now sits reclined at Abraham's side and feasts sumptuously on the promises of God and his mercy, and the other remains in torment, and he begs for some relief. Let's think about this passage this morning, and let's see if we can see ourselves here. I think whenever I was preaching last time, I got down to uh, about, let's see, verse... 25, Abraham said, child, remember that you in your life received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. This word for child, Greek word technion, this is a reference to the fact Abraham may be making the point of saying, look, you may be genetically related to me. This is a Greek term of endearment. You may be biologically down the line, a great grandchild of mine, but the reality is being genetically related to someone doesn't bring salvation, does it? There's a difference between being a part of a family where the parents have salvation and the grandparents have salvation, but that doesn't guarantee you salvation just because you were born into a family like that. Remember you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now let me pause for just a minute, give you a little caution warning here. This passage is not teaching that wealth is fundamentally bad. Because in the Old Testament, Father Abraham was very rich. Do you know that? He had a lot of resources. King Solomon was very rich, had a lot of resources. And even in the parable previous to this, the the one of the dishonest steward, we saw that the rich man was, was he the scoundrel or was he the good guy in that? He was the good guy, wasn't he? So it's not the riches that are bad. The, The issue is not the money. Here's what the issue is. It's what you do with it, right? And how you view it. Here's the point that is being made here with this rich man. I think it simply boils down to this that in his lifetime, his dependency on his riches showed that what he did with him and what he did with them revealed what he truly was. It is like in Unto Lazarus, what he did with what he had, he put everything in his dependency on. Faith. Uh, This man drew his dependency on what he had. Now if you remember last week, if you haven't heard it, last week I talked about this does not always equate to riches. This could be a brick mason relying on his skill as a mason. This could be a teacher relying on their ability to put together lessons plan. This could be a nurse relying on their ability to heal and their giftedness in that area. This could be a preacher relying on his eloquence in the pulpit, right? It could be any of those things. It is a dependence on and a saving through and a satisfaction that comes from that primarily and not from Knowing the Lord and placing that dependence and joy in the Lord. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Another thing that's interesting to me, how long did Lazarus lay at the gate of the rich man? We don't know, but we can say this, right? Uh, We said that he knew the name of the poor man. The rich man knew the name of the poor man at his gate. He, He calls him out by name when he sees him. Up in heaven, I'm not sure how that works, but there's some way he could see up in heaven. We talked about last week that must be part of the torture of hell to be able to see those whom God has redeemed and not be able to be part of the mercy of God that is there. And so his eyes being fixed there, he tries to treat him like he did when he was in heaven or whenever he was on earth, thinking that things kind of work the same. Now that Lazarus is in good shape, right, he wants to send him on an errand in the economy of God, things don't work that way. I think I gave you the illustration last time of me being in Key Club, being the vice president. That doesn't get me anything authoritative after being out of there. It didn't really even get me that much while I was in there. Uh, can't use that to get special parking at the University of Tennessee at a concert. Can't use that to get VIP backstage patches at the convention now. That doesn't work. And in a similar fashion, the rich man doesn't realize how his plight has shifted to where now his money and his name mean nothing, mean nothing. Now, next, next passage here, 26. Um, before I jump into this one, one last thing I want to say about this, verse 25. There are red states in this country and there are blue states, right? There are liberal states and there are conservative states. We live in a conservative state. This is a pre-red state, okay? So, in our context, part of this sermon. Part of this parable is easy for us to get. When we get to the part about accountability in hell, everybody's going to clap and be like, we're on board with it. That's a hard sell in the blue states, right? They want everybody to go to heaven. They want universalism, things like that. Well, here in the red states, there's a challenge in verse 25, right? And the challenge is this. In this passage, are we learning that God cares for the poor and the needy? Are we learning that from Christ? Then shouldn't we care about the things that God cares about? There's a challenge here for us. Listen, we feel it as a pressure in a very conservative area to sort of cross our arms and look down our nose and say tsk tisk to the Lazaruses that we pass on the street and who are uh, downtown begging. It's easy for us sometimes to pass on them and to find reasons why we shouldn't help those that are in need. But we should have a heart for the things God has a heart for. That's why at Grace we have several ministries we do to reach out to those that are impoverished. You know, we do the shoe ministry where we're reaching out. You know, I really feel for kids that are in poverty-stricken situations because they can't do much to adjust that, can they? When you're a kid, you can't work. You know, you're totally dependent. And so we we put shoes on all that we see to it that, you know, 20-plus kids from every school get shoes on their feet every year. That's one of the ministries we do here. Another one we do, and this is another reason to be involved in the small group ministry, we do Christmas baskets where we work with the schools to find those families in the most need. And we try to bless those families. I'm going to tell you something. That's a big deal. It's a a helpful thing. And we've heard from numerous families. Tears in their eyes. If y'all hadn't done this, we couldn't have had Christmas. So we, we do things here. We don't just say this from the pulpit. We try to live this here as well. That's just two examples. There are other examples I can't even share with you when you give towards benevolence ministry here of how we try to take care of Lazaruses that are sent here. Because here's the reality. There may be a day where we are walking down the street in Elizabeth and on Elk Avenue passing judgment on somebody for not having something. And you may find yourself on the other side of this equation in eternity looking up and seeing them reclined in luxury, right? All right, verse 26. Verse 26. Besides this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed. Verse 26 is the twist from every other like narrative about a rich man and a poor man dying and going to the afterlife. The Egyptians have a narrative where he gets a second chance to like repent in the afterlife. But here Father Abraham is telling us something that we need to wake up and pay attention to here. He's saying here there's a chasm that's fixed between the two. And look what he goes on in Claire. It's it's exactly what it reads in English. It's exactly what it is in Greek. There's something fixed. There's something there so that when people are at Abraham's side, when they're in heaven, they can't go to hell and get something or bring something to somebody. And people who are in hell can't go to heaven That once death occurs, you are solidified and in your position. What are we learning here in this passage? Well, we're learning a few things. One thing we're learning is this. The reality of hell for sinners. I know that softer preaching is more palatable for our culture than to say... All are sinners. This is what Lloyd, or this is what Martin Luther meant when he said, We're all beggars. We are all sinners. The only thing we're bringing to our salvation is our sin. There is nothing within us that is worth saving on God's part. Jesus, I think I said this last week, but I want to reiterate this again Jesus speaks more about hell than any prophet in the Old Testament. He talks more about it than anybody else. So if this is This is not the words of the Apostle Peter. This is not the words of the Apostle John. This is not Paul's words. These, I believe, are the words from your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, from the God who created you. He is telling you this morning that there is a hell for sinners. And he has, in this passage, defined for us what that looks like. You know, he tells us, the Bible tells us, hell is a real place. It is a place where the worm never dies. It is a place of continual anguish. It is a place where your name doesn't matter. And it is a place where whatever authority you had before has been stripped away and you are just in darkness and in anguish forever. Something else we see here. The takeaway I think is simply this. I cannot trust in birth or wealth or religion to keep me out of hell. I must trust only in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. Second thing we see in this passage I think is that there is a relentlessness of torment in hell. I've already kind of highlighted this before but I want to make this point very clear today. When you die, when death happens to you, you you will go to one of two places and you will have one of two experiences. The two experiences are as follows. One experience will be to know the mercy and the goodness and the joy of the Lord forever. Right? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said years ago that when we talk of heaven, our faces should light up as the noonday sun. And when we talk about hell, your regular face will do. Well now I'm going to talk about hell. So here's my regular face. My scouring regular face. Here's the other option for you. The other option for you and for me is this. We can either remain under the mercy and the grace of God forever. Or we will remain under the torment of the wrath of God forever. There is no in between. And there is no second chances once death occurs. There is a finality that is there. What's the takeaway here? I will either experience the relentlessness of grace or the relentlessness of torment here. All right, let's advance this over. Verse 27, and he said, so the the rich man understands he's in hell forever. He gets it. Lazarus can't come. He can't call Lazarus to be his errand boy, even though he's tried. He's trying to live like he was before he died, getting other people to do his bidding all the time because of who he is and the riches he had, which he's stripped of now. It means nothing. So what's he do? He, he, he runs for a second plight here. Then he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. <laughs> All right, Lazarus won't come to me. Send him on an errand for me, right? Send him somewhere else for me. And what's he say here? Verse 28, I have five brothers. And you know, no doubt, this is me filling in the blank a little bit. They know Lazarus. They would join me for my Sunday, my Sabbath day brunches. They would walk right past him by the gate, know him by name. And I tell you, if my five brothers could just see Lazarus up on his feet and in good shape speaking to them, if you'll just send him in a physical body, they can touch and see and him restored. What's he say will happen here? Uh, then warn them. At least they also come into this place. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. And Abraham said to, them, said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Ooh, What are we learning here? We are learning the role of Moses and the prophets. Now let me ask you a question here. Let's be very clear on what we're talking about. What, what Jesus is saying here. Moses is dead by this point. When Jesus is preaching... Even the last of the Old Testament prophets, which is John the Baptist, has lost his head chronologically with the story of Christ here. So all of the prophets that have come from Moses to John the Baptist are dead. And yet, present active indicative, they're speaking. How do dead prophets speak to you? Tell me, church, how do they do it? It's the Word, isn't it? It has to be. The Word. What is this man's reaction when Moses tells, when Abraham tells him, they have the Word of God? It's sufficient. Listen to the reaction. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Well, I think we've tried that, haven't we? Didn't Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb? What was the reaction of the Pharisees? Praise God, Lord, save me. This man truly is the Son of God. Was that their reaction? What was their reaction? The more he did, the more angry they got, the more ready they were to put him on the cross. What about when he would preach, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? And then he walked out of the tomb. Did the Pharisees say, praise God? He has fulfilled the prophecy and the Messiah is here. We are saved. What was the reaction? Quick, spread around the news that someone has stolen the body. Right? I've seen two times. See, here is the problem. People want a show more than they want the Word of God. They want a show more than they want the Word of God. I'm going to... I'm going to do this as a case in point here, okay? This is easy to say for these people then, but it's happening right here in Carter County, okay? This was sent to me this week, all right? This is a a Facebook post that somebody sent to me and my wife that they found online. And they are describing what happened in a worship service that was real God really showed up, okay? So I'm going to blank the name of the church out, but this is a church within five miles of where you're sitting. All right, here we go. The Lord showed up today at blank Baptist tonight. Blank didn't even preach, so the preacher didn't even get up in the pulpit and exegete Scripture. He didn't even do it. God showed up. There was no preaching. There was no hearing from the prophets and Moses, but God showed up, One of our deacons, who's 75, jumped off the stage. And I've been longing for a time to have a service like we had tonight. Different people got up and testified. What a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I'm trying to picture this in my mind. Like, is this like a a 1990s mosh pit where the 75-year-old jumped out into the crowd? Or was this just, did he do a backflip? Like, what, what is it that they're talking about in this passage? In this, in this Facebook post or whatever social media it was. And then in the same thread, it gets worse. <laughs> Somebody added to this madness and foolishness and said, those are the best kinds of services when the big preacher takes over. Now bear in mind, not one look at the word of God in this service. We had a wonderful service at blank church yesterday pastor was so full of the spirit he jumped over the first two pews and we had a young man give his life to the lord void of preaching of the word jumping off stage jumping over pews this is a joke this is not movements of god it's a joke no jesus says they have abraham they have the prophets. Don't mistake a show for the movement of God. Listen. Don't put too much emphasis on the music sign. Now, as long as I'm a preacher, we'll sing praises to God. You know why? God's commanded it and it's our joy to sing praise to Him. One time on the other side, we were down to like fourth string singers for the 9 o'clock service. And they said, Preacher, we just want to cut the singing this morning. I said, absolutely not. If I have to, I'll get up there and I'll sing, right? So you understand, I believe we should sing praise to God. Now, nobody wants that train wreck of me up here leading worship. Nobody wants that. You don't want that. I don't want that. Nobody wants that. But I'll do it because the Bible gives enough leeway and make a joyful noise to the Lord, and I would have done it, okay? Sometimes are we making too much of choirs? Or what about praise teams? Are we losing the emphasis and the connection to Moses and the prophets and the word? Now preacher, you've just moved over to Medlin now. Maybe I have and maybe I should. Because God has made it clear. I didn't say these things. Where did these come? Whose lips did this roll off of? Pastor Travis's lips? No, no. These come off the very lips of your Lord and Savior. What must always be central at this church? The preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It must be. Because look what he says here. First time we see the word repent, right here in this verse, verse 30. First time we've seen it throughout the whole passage. Whose. Who's saying the word repent here? The man that's in hell, right? But let me ask you this. Consider this for a moment with me. When he talks about repentance here, is he talking about repentance in a way that he is being repented, he is being broken and contrite over his spirit himself? Or is he just referencing repentance as a way for his brothers to avoid the anguish that he's in? Is he actually participating in verse 30 in an act of repentance? Or is he talking about repentance removed from it? It's the second, isn't it? You see, here's the reality of the situation. He wants to do any and everything he can to avoid the anguish of hell. And he wants his brothers to do any and everything they can to avoid the anguish of hell. And the reality here of this passage, he understands what should be done even though he is unwilling to do it. He wants them to avoid it. You know, in our community here in the Bible Belt, we live in an area that is like gospel inoculation, where people are just good moral deists. And they do and they act without repentance because they are hoping to bypass the anguish of hell, not realizing the joy and delights that are handed out to us at the mercy of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. For them it's about. As we said in our Sunday school class this morning. It's about doing in order to be. Not realizing that you be in order to do. In scripture. Be a repentor. Have these things given to us. This man in hell. You know one of the takeaways we're seeing here. I must accept the witness of the scriptures. I must accept What is being said here? And I must repent because of it. Because the reality of Scripture is simply this. If you won't accept the Word of God and you won't accept the Scripture, you won't accept Jesus Christ. You won't. This morning, we see in this passage two destinations. We see in this passage, not to neglect the things that God loves... And we see in this passage here, mercy that has been extended. I wonder today, where are you? What is most important to you about this relationship you have with the Lord? How do you hear from Him? If you're waiting for backflips from the preacher and me to jump over two rows of chairs, you're in the wrong place. It's not happening here. I'm not here to give you a show. I'm here to give you what God has said. Right? Can we accept that? A great atheist and a Christian were debating. I remember watching this several years back. The closing of their debate, the Christian looked at the atheist and he said, tell me, just suppose with me for a minute, I know you say you don't believe in God and you have held to that position throughout our debate, but suppose with me for a game here, suppose you died and were to find yourself after your death that God is real and you are sitting down in front of him. He said, what would you do? What would you say to God? What question would you ask him or what statement would you make as to why you never believed or followed him in your life? And the man said this, (laughs) I would say, not enough evidence. You don't give me enough evidence. You know what Jesus is saying in this passage today? What Abraham's saying to the rich man, what he's saying to us? That's not why people don't believe. People don't believe because of lack of evidence. They lack faith because God they don't lack faith because God didn't give them a testimony. He did give them a testimony. They lack faith because they hadn't seen an impressive miracle to impress them enough. They haven't seen a show good enough to contribute and move them over. No. They just want to trust and live their life in the things that they want and the good things that they have here. And it distracts them from the mercy and the beauty that surrounds them. Too easily are we preoccupied with the good things God gives us. And not seeing the great thing he gave us on the cross. Remember, we are all beggars. We all stand at the gate this morning the same. We beg and plead for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we close this sermon this morning, this, this looking at the passage, and we are amazed. Amazed at mercy that is given to us. Lord, thank you for how we can worship and praise you on so many levels here at Grace, how we I have so many folks that are talented. I'm so thankful, all of them. But Lord, may we never lose sight of what you have said in this passage. That we must make the words of Moses and the prophets. We must make the word what is central. We must make Christ what is central here. Lord, for all those Lazaruses we passed on our way and brushed off, forgive us, God. Give us a heart like yours that loves those that are downtrodden and in need. Help us to see those needs and to give to them. And God, help us to take accountants of our own lives this morning, that we truly are beggars. We truly bring nothing to this salvation but our sin. Let us stand today not talking about repentance as a faraway thing removed, as this man in hell did, but let it be who we are. Let it be part of our identity in Christ. A repenting people, hearts broken and turned to you as we beg at your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You hear this morning, do you feel the drawing of the spirit? Is Jesus pulling you to himself? Won't you respond to Christ now? Won't you come to him this morning? Listen, death is no respecter of age. Or wealth. I know this week at UNACA, three weeks ago, we would have never dreamed that we'd be one sophomore short this week than we were three weeks ago, but it happened. Won't you come to Christ now? The good news is the mercy is here for you. Won't you accept it? Won't you repent and turn to Him? Or won't you come be part of this body or be baptized? However, God is pulling you to himself. Won't you do that as we stand? I'll be in the back to receive you. Please stand as we sing.